Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Poison of Subjectivism by C.S. Lewis Part 1 One cause of misery and vice is always present with us in the greed and pride of men. But at certain periods in history this is greatly increased by the temporary prevalence of some false philosophy. Correct thinking will not make good men of bad ones, but a purely theoretical error may remove ordinary checks to evil and deprive good intentions of their natural support. An error of this sort is abroad at present. I am not referring to the power philosophies of the totalitarian states, but to something that goes deeper and spreads wider, and which, indeed, has given these power philosophies their golden opportunity. I am referring to subjectivism. After studying his environment, man has begun to study himself. Up to that point, he had assumed his own reason and through it seen all other things. Now, his own reason has become the object. It is as if we took out our eyes to look at them. Thus studied, his own reason appears to him as the epiphenomenon which accompanies chemical or electrical events in a cortex which is itself the byproduct of a blind evolutionary process. His own logic, hitherto the king whom events in all possible worlds must obey, becomes merely subjective. There is no reason for supposing that it yields truth. As long as this dethronement refers only to the theoretical reason, it cannot be wholehearted. The scientist has to assume the validity of his own logic, in the stout old fashion of Plato or Spinoza, even in order to prove that it is merely subjective, and therefore he can only flirt with subjectivism. It is true that this flirtation sometimes goes pretty far. There are modern scientists, I am told, who have dropped the words truth and reality out of their vocabulary, and who hold that the end of their work is not to know what is there, but simply to get practical results. This is, no doubt, a bad symptom. But, in the main, subjectivism is such an uncomfortable yoke fellow for research that the danger, in this quarter, is continually counteracted. But when we turn to practical reason, the ruinous effects are found operating in full force. By practical reason, I mean our judgment of good and evil. If you are surprised that I include this under the heading of reason at all, let me remind you that your surprise is itself one result of the subjectivism I am discussing. Until modern times, No thinker of the first rank ever doubted that our judgments of value were rational judgments, or that what they discovered was objective. It was taken for granted that in temptation passion was opposed, not to some sentiment, but to reason. Thus Plato thought, thus Aristotle, thus Hooker, Butler, and Dr. Johnson. The modern view is very different. It does not believe that value judgments are really judgments at all. They are sentiments, or complexes, or attitudes, produced in a community by the pressure of its environment and its traditions, and differing from one community to another. 
To say that a thing is good is merely to express our feeling about it. And our feeling about it is the feeling we have been socially conditioned to have. But if this is so, then we might have been conditioned to feel otherwise. Perhaps, thinks the reformer, or the educational expert, it would be better if we were. Let us improve our morality. Out of this apparently innocent idea comes the disease that will certainly end our species, and, in my view, damn our souls, if it is not crushed. The fatal superstition that men can create values, that a community can choose its ideology as men choose their clothes. Everyone is indignant when he hears the Germans define justice as that which is to the interest of the Third Reich. But it is not always remembered that this indignation is perfectly groundless if we ourselves regard morality as a subjective sentiment to be altered at will. Unless there is some objective standard of good, overarching Germans, Japanese, and ourselves alike, whether any of us obey it or no, then of course the Germans are as competent to create their ideology as we are to create ours. If good and better are terms deriving their sole meaning from the ideology of each people, then of course ideologies themselves cannot be better or worse than one another. Unless the measuring rod is independent of the things measured, we can do no measuring. For the same reason, it is useless to compare the moral ideas of one age with those of another. Progress and decadence are alike meaningless words. All this is so obvious that it amounts to an identical proposition. But how little it is now understood can be gauged from the procedure of the moral reformer who, after saying that good means what we are conditioned to like, goes on cheerfully to consider whether it might be better that we should be conditioned to like something else. What, in heaven's name, does he mean by better? He usually has at the back of his mind the notion that if he throws over traditional judgment of value, he will find something else, something more real or solid on which to base a new scheme of values. He will say, for example, we must abandon irrational taboos and base our values on the good of the community, as if the maxim, thou shalt promote the good of the community, were anything more than a polysyllabic variant of do as you would be done by, which has itself no other basis than the old universal value judgment he claims to be rejecting. Or he will endeavor to base his values on biology and tell us that we must act thus and thus for the preservation of our species. Apparently, he does not anticipate the question, why should the species be preserved? He takes it for granted that it should, because he is really relying on traditional judgments of value. If he were starting, as he pretends, with a clean slate, he could never reach this principle. Sometimes he tries to do so by falling back on instinct. We have an instinct to preserve our species, he may say. But have we? And if we have, who told us that we must obey our instincts? And why should we obey this instinct in the teeth of many others which conflict with the preservation of our species? The reformer knows that some instincts are to be obeyed more than others only because he is judging instincts by a standard. 
And the standard is, once more, the traditional morality which he claims to be superseding. The instincts themselves, obviously, cannot furnish us with grounds for grading the instincts in a hierarchy. If you do not bring a knowledge of their comparative respectability to your study of them, you can never derive it from them. This whole attempt to jettison traditional values as something subjective and to substitute a new scheme of values for them is wrong. It is like trying to lift yourself by your own coat collar. Let us get two propositions written into our minds with indelible ink. 1. The human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of planting a new sun in the sky or a new primary color in the spectrum. 2. Every attempt to do so consists in arbitrarily selecting some one maxim of traditional morality, isolating it from the rest, and erecting it into an unum necessarium. The second proposition will bear a little illustration. Ordinary morality tells us to honor our parents and cherish our children. By taking the second precept alone, you construct a futurist ethic in which the claims of posterity are the sole criterion. Ordinary morality tells us to keep promises and also to feed the hungry. By taking the second precept alone, you get a communist ethic in which production and distribution of the products to the people are the sole criteria. Ordinary morality tells us, ceteris paribus, to love our kindred and fellow citizens more than strangers. By isolating this precept, you can get either an aristocratic ethic with the claims of our class as sole criterion, or a racialist ethic, where no claims but those of blood are acknowledged. These monomaniac systems are then used as a ground from which to attack traditional morality. But absurdly, since it is from traditional morality alone that they derive such semblance of validity as they possess. Starting from scratch, with no assumptions about value, we could reach none of them. If reverence for parents or promises is a mere subjective byproduct of physical nature, so is reverence for race or posterity. The trunk to whose root the reformer would lay the axe is the only support of the particular branch he wishes to retain. All idea of new or scientific or modern moralities must therefore be dismissed as mere confusion of thought. We have only two alternatives. Either the maxims of traditional morality must be accepted as axioms of practical reason which neither admit nor require argument to support them, and not to see which is to have lost human status. Or else there are no values at all. What we mistook for values being projections of irrational emotions. It is perfectly futile. After having dismissed traditional morality with the question, why should we obey it? Then to attempt the reintroduction of value at some later stage in our philosophy. Any value we reintroduce can be countered in just the same way. 
Every argument used to support it will be an attempt to derive from premises in the indicative mood a conclusion in the imperative. And this is impossible. Against this view, the modern mind has two lines of defense. The first claims that traditional morality is different in different times and places. In fact, that there is not one morality, but a thousand. The second exclaims that to tie ourselves to an immutable moral code is to cut off all progress and acquiesce in stagnation. Both are unsound. Let us take the second one first, and let us strip it of the illegitimate emotional power it derives from the word stagnation, with its suggestion of puddles and mantled pools. If water stands too long, it stinks. To infer thence that whatever stands long must be unwholesome is to be the victim of metaphor. Space does not stink because it has preserved its three dimensions from the beginning. The square on the hypotenuse has not gone moldy by continuing to equal the sum of the squares of the other two sides. Love is not dishonored by constancy. And when we wash our hands, we are seeking stagnation and putting the clock back, artificially restoring our hands to the status quo in which they began the day, and resisting the natural trend of events which would increase their dirtiness steadily from our birth to our death. For the emotive term, stagnant, let us substitute the descriptive term, permanent. Does a permanent moral standard preclude progress? On the contrary, except on the supposition of a changeless standard, progress is impossible. If good is a fixed point, it is at least possible that we should get nearer and nearer to it. But if the terminus is as mobile as the train... How can the train progress toward it? Our ideas of the good may change, but they cannot change either for the better or the worse if there is no absolute and immutable good to which they can approximate, or from which they can recede. We can go on getting a sum more and more nearly right only if the one perfectly right answer is stagnant. And yet it will be said, I have just admitted that our ideas of good may improve. How is this to be reconciled with the view that traditional morality is a depositum fidei which cannot be deserted? The answer can be understood if we compare a real moral advance with a mere innovation. From the Stoic and Confucian, do not do to others what you would not like them to do to you. To the Christian, do as you would be done by is a real advance. The morality of Nietzsche is a mere innovation. The first is an advance because no one who did not admit the validity of the old maxim could see reason for accepting the new one, and anyone who accepted the old would at once recognize the new as an extension of the same principle. If he rejected it, he would have to reject it as a superfluity, something that went too far, not as something simply heterogeneous from his own ideas of value. But the Nietzschean ethic can be accepted only if we are ready to scrap traditional morals as a mere error and then to put ourselves in a position where we can find no ground for any value judgments at all. It is the difference between a man who says to us, you like your vegetables moderately fresh, why not get your own and have them perfectly fresh? And a man who says, 
Throw away that loaf and try eating bricks and centipedes instead. Real moral advances, in fine, are made from within the existing moral tradition, and in the spirit of that tradition, and can be understood only in the light of that tradition. The outsider who has rejected the tradition cannot judge them. He has, as Aristotle said, no archaic, no premises. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>